So this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 26 and 27, and then next week we'll talk about what it means to exercise dominion as God calls us to here in the first chapter of Genesis. As you look at these first few verses this morning, I want to say this to you. You have dignity, value, and worth. You are a special person. You know, you, you have you have value. You are created special. Now, words like this make us feel good. We hear these words a lot in our society today, that we're special. Now, if I was also say this to you, that all that you are is for God, that you are created for him, that you are accountable to him, that you are responsible to him, that your life has been given to you such that you would glorify God. Now, that is not as popular today as those first few statements about how special you are and how important you are and how valuable or how worthy you are. But what I want to show you from this text of scripture today is that those, both those statements are true, but both those statements must come together. And they do come together when we understand the right teaching of what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means for us as humankind to be image bearers of Almighty God. So first of all, what is the image of God? Look with me again at verse 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be created in God's image, okay, or in God's likeness? Now, some have tried to divide image and likeness, but it's really not a thing that you can divide either linguistically with the language or what you see elsewhere in scripture. Both mean the same thing, created in God's image or created in his likeness. But what does that mean? Well, it means that in some ways, and in very, very important ways, tangible ways, that we as human beings are similar to God. In that we are our finite replicas, the character qualities that we possess are finite replicas of God's infinite qualities. Okay, so when we are when we bear God's image, image back in the ancient days, you know, we have images today which are which are pictures. We share them online, or we we even sometimes, uh, if you're more old school, you even print them out. But uh, we have images. But back images in those days were, were statues, things that were carved or, or 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 maybe painted even. And so these images were representations of a person, usually a king or someone in power, someone of importance. I'm making a thing today as a picture. Now, a picture is not you. It represents you. And it represents your physical features. Um, we, we can tell that much from a picture. But it is not, it is not you. And so in, in very important ways, we picture, we image, we represent God here on earth and how he has created us. Now, what exactly does that mean? What exactly do we reflect or represent of God? Well, there's a number of different qualities that we have that are finite replicas of God's infinite qualities, things like intellectual ability, ability to think and to reason. We have a moral sense, sense of morality. We have a spiritual nature, a soul. We have the ability to be creative, to be um, designers and to create. 
to, to create artwork or things of practical nature. We have the ability to discover and to explore, to plan. We have the ability to make choices, to exercise our will, to, to, to take dominion, to have authority. We have the ability to use language and to communicate. These things are, are things that God has created in us that, that are different than what he has given to animals. You know, take language, for instance. All over Genesis chapter 1, we have, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so. God is a speaking God. He speaks and it takes place. He speaks and it happens. And so how do we, as God's image bearers, reflect God? Well, we have the capacity to use language for God to communicate to us and for us to communicate to others. When God first created Adam, Adam could speak. And Adam used his his voice and his speech to name all the animals. And so here we see Adam being an image bearer of God. In fact, in James 3, 9, it talks about the power of language. And it says this, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So you have those, those themes coming together in James 3, 9, with the power of language that God has given to us as his image bearers. We can, we can use that to bless God and to worship him, and we also use it to tear down and destroy others using the power of language. And it says that such things should not happen, especially to those who are made in the likeness of God. Now, the image of God is not given to any other creature or creation. It's only given to mankind, to male and to female. Some people ask, well, was the image of God affected by the fall into sin? Some would argue that the image was lost when we fell into sin, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3. But the passage I just read in James 3 and 9 would, would argue otherwise. He says that you're using your speech to destroy those who are made in the likeness of God, made in God's image. And so we still have people well after the fall being said that they're made in the image of God. We have Genesis 9, 6 that says don't murder because a person is made in the image of God. Again, that's after the fall. God's saying they were made in God's image. So God's image continues even after sin. Although certainly we see a sinful nature has corrupted and marred the goodness that God had created on day number six here in creation account. Okay? So to be made in God's image doesn't mean that we represent him fully in all ways. It doesn't mean that we're many gods. But there's always a distinction between the creator and the creature, just like there's always a distinction between humanity and the animals. Okay? There's there's no indication anywhere in scripture that you can have evolution taking place, that we, we evolved from apes. There's always a distinction between mankind and all of the rest of God's created order, just as there's a distinction between God and ourselves. Okay, so that's the, that's the image of God. Now what I want to talk about this morning is, is three ways that this is so important. Okay, the significance of God's image on, on, uh, in us, in humanity, and that is very important for us to understand. First of all, the image of God is significant to the value and dignity of all human life. Okay? To the value and dignity of human life. Now, murder is wrong. We all know murder is wrong. But why is murder wrong? Have you ever thought about that? Why is murder wrong? You know, as a Christian, as one who is holding to the truth in Scripture, as revelation from God, and as is all the authority in our life, 
To answer that question of why murder is wrong is quite simple. I've already referred to Genesis 9, 6 that says that whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. That is, you can't take another man's life because he's made in the image of God. That's the, the basis, the moral basis for why, it's, why murder is wrong. And so there's an objective foundation to say murder is wrong as we stand on the truthfulness of scripture and of what God has said. But how would the world answer this question today? Why is murder wrong? Why is human life special? You know, aren't we just evolved apes? And if a chimp was to kill another chimp out in the jungle for say, other chimps aren't going to take them and bring them from a trial and a court and press charges and put that chimp in jail because he murdered another chimp. No, it's just, that's what nature does. And so what's special about us? Now, there are many different ethicists in today that would try to argue for why exactly murder is wrong. They don't have an agreement on this. But that ethic and what our society says is right and wrong, we have to understand, not only do they have, have a fa- solid foundation to say why murder is wrong, but that foundation that they have to say why things are right and wrong is always changing. And so we've decided as a society today that killing the unborn is no longer murder. Killing the elderly, in fact, is no longer murder. And it's not just that it's not wrong. It's not just that it's morally neutral. It's actually morally good. It's a good thing to advocate for abortion in today's society. In fact, just this very week, a member of our own Canadian parliament said that if women do not have on-demand access to abortion, then what we're doing as a society is we're committing violence against women by denying them that. That's, that's the logic, that's the morality of many in our society, at least those who have a very loud voice. So it's a good thing to provide abortion on demand and to help the elderly take their own lives. But why just these groups of people? Why not other people in our society? We know that abortions are also done for those who are are deemed unfit, whether that's a genetic disorder or perhaps they're not even the right gender that we want. But who else is going to be on the list of, of what is morally right tomorrow, the next week? Now, when I start saying this, people say, whoa, 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 you're... You're just trying to do scare tactics here. The slippery slope. It's not going to go that way. That argument has no basis. But I want you to think with me just for a second. Okay? Now, if our society on a whole believes in evolutionary theory, so if, if evolutionary theory is true, then what basis can we ever say that murder is wrong? If evolution theory is true, then murder should be just normal. It should be natural. In, the, in this fight for survival. If the evolutionary way of looking at the world is true, then it would follow, as some people argue, that we as a human race are progressing. We're evolving. And if we're evolving as a human race, well, there's some among us who are not quite fit to represent the humanity of the future, and we should really knock them off. In fact, such was the argument of Hitler in Nazi Germany. He used the ideas of natural selection and said, we need to help out nature by eliminating some of these inferior ethnicities such that the human race can go on that trajectory of perfection. Now, some would argue, well, that's unfair to lump Hitler in with a view of evolution. But this has not just happened in Nazi Germany. This kind of thinking has happened here in Canada. This kind of thinking has happened here in Alberta. 
I want to quote to you about the eugenics movement. It says this, the eugenics movement bounced up in many European and American jurisdictions in response to historical, social, scientific, economic, and political processes occurring at the time. Francis Galton, he invented the term eugenics. He was Charles Darwin's cousin in 1883. He built it from his Latin roots, meaning good in birth or noble in heredity. The science of eugenics was concerned with the improvement of the human standard and focused on the influence that would give the more suitable races or strain of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable. Eugenicists were concerned with managing the direction human evolution would take. Natural selection, about which Galton's cousin Charles Darwin wrote, was insufficient to deal with the needs of modern society. If left solely to nature, eugenicists argued, the dangerous classes who were thought to have a high volume reproductive rate would take over. Ideas promoted abroad were quick to gain popularity in Canada and in the early 1900s. In fact, it was passed as law here in the province of Alberta. The most damaging sterilization program in Canadian history was afforded via the passing of the Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act of 1928. This law wasn't rescinded until 1972. And between those years, sterilizations were both compulsory and optional were performed on nearly 3,000 deemed unfit individuals of varying ages and ethnicities. This is not just Nazi Germany. This is here in Canada. This is here in Alberta where they have say, and based on evolutionary thinking, we need to sterilize and, and stop some of these unfit people in our society from reproducing such that our progress of human evolution can continue. And so this is not just a scare tactic or slippery slope argument. This has already happened. Murder, racism, eugenics, abortion, Abuse, all of these sins cannot be objectively confronted with an evolutionary view of the world. In fact, I would argue that an evolutionary view of the world naturally leads to these sins, naturally leads to these abuses. So why don't we see more of it happening? Well, it's by God's grace in restraining sin in this world. God's grace in giving us a sense of morality in our heart. So we have an understanding of right and wrong that restrains us from sinning in these grievous ways. And I'm thankful for that. And so evolutionary theory really leads to a variety of terrible consequences. But when we recognize the important truth that we, all of us, are made in the image of God, we all have value, dignity, worth, significance. All of our lives are worth fighting for and defending, not killing off. So because we are created in the image of God, we can say eugenics is objectively wrong. That we are not evolving into a better race based on skin color, height, or weight, whatever else you want to put as a category of of what you see as progress. We recognize that not only are we created in the image of God, so eugenics is objectively wrong, but because we're created in the image of God and because this world is broken because of sin, we're not evolving this greater race using natural selection or trying to aid that out. The only way that humanity is going to get better is by looking forward to that Savior Jesus Christ who has come to this world to die to, to satisfy our greatest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins. That is our greatest hope. Not in population control, not in abortion, not in eugenics, not in trying to keep the unfit from procreating. 
It's by looking forward to Jesus Christ and recognizing that the solution is in Him, not in evolution. Because we're created in the image of God, not only can we say that eugenics is wrong, we can say that racism is objectively wrong because we're created in the image of God. There are not many races on this planet. There is one race, the human race, all created in the image of God. And regardless of skin color, regardless of nationality, regardless of language, we are all made in God's image. So racism is objectively wrong, according to the scriptures. In fact, the famous Martin Luther King, a very Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist, there's a book that's been published that's titled Martin Luther King Jr. and the Image of God. And in that book, it argues that it was Martin Luther King's Christian view, his Christian theology, and specifically that his theology of the image of God that undergirded the entire civil rights movement that ended this separation between blacks and whites in America. This idea, the biblical idea that we are created in the image of God destroys racism. And as we see racism, again, flourishing in our day today, unless we go back to the biblical understanding that we're all created in God's image, we have no moral and objective way of saying, no, that's wrong. And we all have dignity, value, and worth. Because we're created in the image of God, murder, rape, abuse, and other such sins are objectively wrong. Because we're created in the image of God, abortion is objectively wrong. Now, Dr. Seuss said this before the abortion debate, but he writes in, in Horton Hears a Who, a person is a person no matter how small. And that's true. And a person is created in the image of God no matter how small. And so it's funny, when we go to the hospital, they have that saying plastered on all the walls in the NICU nursery. And what breaks our heart is another wing of the hospital. They're taking the lives of babies the same gestational age as the ones in there. How can such a thing happen? Because we've lost that grounding that we're all made in the image of God. We all have dignity and value and worth no matter how small we are. Because we're created in the image of God, every person has dignity value and worth, and we are to respect one another. Now, this is a virtue in our day and age, although I would argue that it's practiced very inconsistently. But its only basis is in the reality of what God has said and done here in Genesis chapter 1. We have worth because God created us with worth. We have value because God created us with value, because he made us in his own image. So that's the first thing, first significance about the image of God. We have dignity, value, and worth. The second one, is that male and female is part of God's image. Okay, male and female. So we have dignity and value and worth applied to every single person because we're made in God's image, and that includes both men and women. Look at verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he gives them both this command to exercise dominion. Women in the scriptures are not second-class citizens. Okay, the idea that the Bible has this, this really demeaning view of women is completely ludicrous. In creation, women are given an equal standing, bearing the image of God, equal in dignity and value and worth, just as men. And both in redemption as well. It's not just in creation, but those who have been 
bought by the blood of Christ. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is, we all have equal standing before God in redemption. So whether you're talking about creation or whether you're talking about redemption or status in Christ, there is an equality between men and women. Now, it's at this point that people get confused. Because as soon as the Bible introduces roles for men and women in chapter 2, now that argument seems to go out the window. Okay, so God creates men and women equal because we're created in his image. We all have equal dignity, value, and worth. But yet in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to get there in a few weeks, when God creates Adam and Eve, he gives to the man and to the woman different roles. Roles that only the man can fulfill. Roles that only the woman can fulfill. We see later roles that only, uh, only work in government or in church. That does not take away from the idea that men and women are created equal in God's image, in God's sight. Okay? Role does not determine your value or your worth. Okay? As I stand before you today, am I a more valuable person because I preach? Am I more valuable because it's my job to shepherd this flock? Am I, am I more important than you? No. We just read that passage in Galatians 3.28. Whether you're rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, we're all one in Christ. Okay, there's an equality between you and me, although we have different roles. Okay, just because a guy is a CEO in the company or someone is, is a janitor doesn't mean that the janitor is less of a human than the CEO. Roles do not dictate our value and our worth. And that's where the misunderstanding comes. As soon as the scriptures say, and they do, that the role of a husband in the marriage is to lead that home, people shout, that's inequality. When the scriptures say the role of qualified men is to lead in the teaching and the preaching and the eldering, the pastoring the church, people cry out, that's discriminatory against women. The scriptures give us beautifully these roles of men and women that complement one another. We're equal in dignity and value and worth, but yet there is a difference in roles. I can't give birth to a child, but that doesn't make me any less of a person than my wife who has that capacity and that role in our family. Okay, so we have different roles and yet we complement one another. And so this view is, is called complementarianism, okay? Because we complement one another as men and women. We differ in roles, but yet we're equal in status. We're equal in value and worth before God. Now, as I say that, this view that I've tried to articulate to you has been mischaracterized as patriarchy, male domination, authoritarianism, male chauvinism, and a bunch of other unfair labels. And they say that as the Bible talks about different roles for men and women, that it's degrading and discriminatory. Now, let me just say this, that it is feminism and its influence that is really discriminatory against women, not the Bible. Let me give you this example. As I share this with people, and they are responding in a way that is um, in keeping with our society today, and they respond back, and as I explain that men, biblically qualified men, are given the task to teach the congregation. 
And the scriptures forbid that task to women and say it's for quali- biblically qualified men to teach the congregation. Although we do have examples in Titus 2 of women teaching other women. And so then people respond back and say, that is so unfair. You mean to tell me that a woman who is gifted at teaching cannot teach the church, but she can only teach other women? Yes. And that's what they say. And the key phrase is only teach other women. And as you hear that, and as you hear their tone, you can tell that the task of just teaching women is too low for them. So who has the discriminatory view of women? Is it the scriptures or is it those who think just teaching women is beneath them? They want to teach the men. And why is that? Because in their mind, men are more important. And so even in their objection to the biblical truth, it betrays the true motive of what they see in terms of men and women. So the Bible doesn't degrade either male or female, but holds them together in unity in the image of God, and yet we have distinct roles that do not affect our value and our worth. Now, having talking about the roles of men and women, I must also note that in our day and age, not only are the roles of men and women confused, but gender itself is now fluid. And you can go from male to female or vice versa. And it's now an attribute of self-identification rather than an attribute of God-given biology. It says here that God created them male and female. Um, Current trends to popularize transgenderism is, is against God's design in Genesis 1. It's against nature. It's against biology. It's against DNA. It's everything in your body. Um, in fact, gender dysphoria, which is what transgenderism is called in the scientific literature, it remains listed as a mental disorder according to the American Psychiatric Association. Okay, so it's not just Christians who are trying to be mean. Our biology, our DNA specifies whether we are male or female. You can't change that with your makeup. You can't change that with implants. You can't change that with um, hormones. You can't change that just with a, with a self-identification. This is a God-given um, thing that we are created male or female. Your gender cannot be changed. We can have feminized men or we can have masculinized females, but you can't change your God-given gender. Now, at this point, some here or listening will think, well, that's really unloving to say. And comments like I just made are comments that are contributing to the problems in our society today because the transgender community is suffering from a variety of other mental problems and, and, and suicide is a real problem. And, as, and when I speak out like I just did, that's going to lead to more and more problems. And how can I be so unloving and insensitive to say that? And this is what I want to be aware from what the scriptures say. It is loving to tell someone the truth. Jesus says, you need to believe the truth and the truth will set you free. And so it's so important, and I'm sure we all know people around us, personally, who are homosexual. People around us who are transgender or are struggling with those kinds of thoughts. I know there are people who listen to these sermons who think that way and who are in that environment right now. I know that. But we must speak the truth with clarity and we must understand that God has created people as male and female and if we go against what God has determined, it's only going to lead to problems in our life and the life of others around us. 
One of the wonderful truths of Scripture is found in 1 Corinthians 6, where it lists a number of sins, including homosexuality, including stealing, lying, idolatry, drunkenness. Okay, we're not trying to single out one sin or the other. It lists a whole bunch of sins. And it says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified through Jesus Christ. Okay, so that is the great hope of the church. That again, through the redemption of Christ, the confusion of our society today can be healed, it can be mended. We can see true transformation back to God's original intention for male and for female. And so that's good news that we have grace And so whether you're in that lifestyle now, whether you have struggled with it in the past, perhaps you have abortions in your past, the great news of the gospel is that we can be forgiven by the merciful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we can experience true transformation, not by changing hormones or or our externals, by a true transformation of the heart. When he rips out a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, when he forgives our sins, when he promises that our heart will not be for the sins of this world, but be for him and for holiness and for righteousness. And there's going to be a day where we're going to see him face to face. He's going to wipe our tears. He's going to comfort all of our sorrows. He's going to heal all our wounds. Suffering will be no more. That is the great hope. And so we cling to the gospel. We cling to the truth. And we must speak the truth as individuals and as a community who preaches the goodness of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning because you think that you're, or perhaps you're thinking now this morning that, you, that you're too awful for Christ. Well, there's things in your past that are just unforgivable. And again, we must realize that no matter what has happened in our past, no matter what we find ourselves into, no matter how great of a sinner we are, Christ is that much more of a greater Savior. That's the great news of Christianity that we must speak into our world today. That's the second point that I wanted to get, the significance. Equality of male and female, uh, the value and dignity of worth of all people, and now the thirdly, And finally, the image of God is significant because it teaches us that we have a responsibility to God. Okay, we have a responsibility to God. We are accountable to Him because we bear His image. We are to honor Him and to give thanks to Him and worship Him. And to show you this, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. It says this, And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Okay, they're trying to butter him up here while acknowledging he can't be buttered up. And they say this, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
So I'm going to stop here for a second. They, they've been trying to trap Jesus with these really strategic questions. They're trying to think of questions that whether Jesus says yes or no, that he's going to fall out of favor. Because of this question, should we pay taxes or not? If Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, everybody in Jerusalem is going to be up in arms because nobody likes the Romans whom the taxes are going to. They're being oppressed by them. These are, these are dictators. These are in our homeland. These are our oppressors. And so no way we shouldn't pay taxes. And so if Jesus says we should pay taxes, now you have the people against him. And if he says we should not pay taxes, well, then he's going to have the authorities after him. Because here we have a teacher who's teaching the people and he's, he's an insurrectionist. He's, he's promoting revolt against the Roman Empire and they'll swiftly take action. So they're so smart. At least they think they do. They think, oh, we have the perfect question that's going to trap Jesus. And no matter which way he answers, it's going to be bad for him. But how does Jesus answer? Verse number 15. He says this, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay. Bring me a coin. They give me a coin. Whose, whose picture is on that? Whose image is on that coin? It's Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And so Jesus is saying, yes, pay your taxes because that money is just going back to Caesar. That, that coin came from him. Give it back to him. Okay. And so he manages to answer that question in such a way that Rather than, than making one group or another angry at him, now everyone's marveling at his wisdom, refuting their, or foiling their attempts to discredit him. But then he says an interesting phrase after answering that tax question. He says, render to God the things that are God's. Now, what does that mean? To render to God the things that are God's. Well, what is Caesar's? Caesar's are the things that bear Caesar's image on them. So what is God's? Gods are the things that bear God's image on them. You and I. We bear God's image. So Jesus is saying here, you give to God that which is God, which is yourself, which is your devotion, which is your love, which is your life, which is all of your being, all of who you are belongs to God. So you give yourself to God. You know, give that coin to Caesar. You can have it. You give God yourself because you are made in his image. His image has been stamped on you. So render to God the things that are God's. You've been made for him. Now, as we consider this, how do I do that? How do I live for God? How do, how do I live in keeping with the fact that God's image has been stamped upon me? Well, the first thing that I would encourage you to ask yourself is, do you even want to live for God? Do you even have a desire to live for God? Do you even have a desire to, to give yourself, to know Him, to love Him, to serve, for, serve Him? Our desires for holiness and for righteousness and to know God even on your mind through the week? If we live our lives and never have a desire to live for God, to love Him, 
then it's likely because we've never been converted. We've never been born again. We've never been redeemed. We're stuck. We're dead in our trespasses and sins and we can't see the glory of God because we're just enjoying the sin around us. But most of us here this morning, I would hope, have had desires to love God and to follow Him and to serve Him and to give your life for Him. But oftentimes that's a roller coaster. We have times when we're, when we're, we're yes, I want to follow God, I want to love God, I want to live for Him. And then other times where we can go days, weeks, months, and nothing's really happening. We feel so cold to God. And so if we're honest, we probably feel that our desire for God varies. Now, what I want to convey to you here this morning and leave you with, what I want to show you from Genesis chapter 1, is when we feel this way, the up and down, the roller coaster of desiring God and feeling cold in our faith, is that God has given us everything that we need. That it's not a matter of, of digging down deep in us, but rather it's a matter of looking to God and trusting in what He has promised to give to us. And I want to show you this for a second. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 1. I want to first show you that God has given us everything that we need to live for Him in creation. Okay, God has, He has created us in His image. So it says in verse 26 and 27. That is, he, he, has, he has made us. He has given us lungs. He has given us the capacity to live and, and, and the things that we need for life. He has created in us. Not only that, but He sustains our life. Look at verse number 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Your food comes to you from God. You know, we pray before we eat. We're thanking God for the food that He provides. So He has made us and He provides us physically with food. You see in verse number 26, when it says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, that God has given us a purpose. He's given us a will. He's given us a domain to exercise authority and responsibility. God has, has given that to us. And so the point in these verses, when God makes us in His image, is that we have everything we need for this life. That God has made us well-suited to our surroundings and He has provided our surroundings such that we could live and thrive and exercise and follow the commands that God has given to us. So in creation, God has given us everything that we need. Now the problem is that we so often live for ourselves. We live for our sinful pleasures. We fall into the trap of pride. We respond in anger or bitterness and depression. Sin plagues us and we go on our lives without thanking God or honoring Him, worshiping Him. And so we see all too often our weaknesses and our failures. And so it's at this point we'll begin to despair and think, what is wrong with me? God is giving me in creation what I need to live. So what is, what is wrong? What, what, what have I done? That, what am I not doing? But what I want to see is not only has God given us what we need in creation, He has given us what we need in redemption through Jesus Christ. Because consider, we wander away from God and we do it so easily. But why did Jesus Christ come? To gather together His sheep, to bring in those who are wandering. He came to seek and to save the lost. 
Okay, we're not the great seekers. Christ is the great seeker. He want, he's the one that came to gather those who are wandering. This is all a part of God's mercy and grace. So he provided this for us. We fail to meet the righteous requirement of the law. And what does God do? Well, he provides us that righteous requirement of the law. He sends his son to accomplish the law, to fulfill the law, and then to give that to us as a gift, to credit it to our account. Again, so in redemption, we have these things given to us. We recognize the call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. We recognize that so often we fail to heed that call. We falter. We're tempted to deny him, to turn our back. Our hearts grow cold. And what does Christ do? Well, he intercedes and he prays for us. Remember Peter is so bold to follow Christ and then he denies Christ three times. But Christ says, you didn't fail. You, you return back to the fold. You, you, you return back to me. Why? Because I was praying for you. And we must realize as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as ones who cling to him in faith, Jesus Christ himself is praying for you. You have what you need to love God because Christ is interceding for you. He came and he died for you to redeem you. He sent his spirit to save you. And now he's praying for you to keep you. What a great news we have when we consider that. He's also given us the gift of the church. We fail on our own, but he gives us one another to encourage one another, to build one another up in love as we reach maturity in Christ. So as we reflect on our responsibility towards God, we reflect on how often we fail to live up to our responsibility to be image bearers of God. But when we fail, we must turn and realize that it is God who has provided for us in creation and God who has provided for us in redemption all the things that we need. And so we must trust Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. Love Him because of what He has done. And it is when we see the goodness and the greatness of God, it is when we see His work on the cross of Jesus Christ and what He has done. We see the work of the Spirit. We see the work of Him interceding. We see the promises that He has made that are going to be fulfilled. When we see those things, we fall in love with God afresh. And our lives are conformed to holiness. And suddenly we're, we're bearing God's image in how we live because our focus is not on ourselves and what we must do. Our focus is on the gifts that God has given to us and trusting Him for those gifts. Trusting that Christ is praying for us as we walk and live our lives. So this week, let's do that. Let's remember the great gifts that God has given to us through His Son. And let us go forth and bear the image of God. Bear the image of Christ, which God is renewing in us through the work that Christ is doing in us. If that is foreign to you, you need to come to Christ in faith. You need to talk to myself or some of the other men here and find out what does it mean to be born again, to have the life of Christ within me. And if you are a believer in Christ, then gaze at Christ. Look at the things that he has given to us. Trust him and follow him. Let's pray. God, we are thankful here this morning that you have given us what we need to be your image bearers. We recognize that we falter and fall in sin. We recognize that so often we just a poor job of representing you here on this earth. And God, we recognize that we are not the ones who truly 
bear your image perfectly. Rather, it is your son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of your nature. And it is to his image that we are being changed and conformed as we trust and follow him. Oh God, may we have greater faith this morning in your goodness, in your character, in your work of redemption, in your work of creation. May we love you. And as we gaze upon you and consider your beauty, may we be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.